Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Sarah Harverson. She's the author of the new book called Soundbite, which talks a little bit about the secrets of getting your kids into college and beyond. We're going to talk a little bit about her experience as the Dean of Admissions at Franklin and Marshall and some of the ins and outs of the college selection process. Enjoy. Welcome aboard, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So college admissions, which is the bane of many parents' existence, is made even more complicated by COVID. Before we get into some of these things, maybe take us through your background a little bit and how you became kind of a leader in your field in this space. Yeah, sure. I went to a very large disadvantaged public high school back in the day in Southern New Jersey, and I had no college counselor. I didn't even know a college counselor existed. But I ended up figuring out the college process on my own, and I loved the whole idea of going away to college and visiting schools and making the decision. So when I got to my college of choice, I ended up making the admissions office my second home. I was a tour guide by second semester freshman year, and you know the rest is history. I did take a couple of detours after college graduation. I spent a year at a law firm and a year in law school, but ultimately made my way to the undergraduate admissions office at Penn, and I began my admissions career at Penn, but ended up going to another institution, becoming the dean of admissions at Franklin and Marshall College, switching to the other side of the desk to be the director of college counseling at a private high school outside of Philly. But now I get to speak my truth and share my knowledge as America's college counselor, the founder and creator of Application Nation, which is a private Facebook group for families applying to college, and now the author of Soundbite. Terrific. Well, you made one great decision, which was to run from law as fast as possible. So congratulations (laughs) on that. And you've seen it from both sides, which is great. You've seen it from the admission side at the institution level and then advising kids individually as they navigate it. So this will be really interesting. Take us through what the college enrollment environment looks like. Are there any statistics? I hear about it from friends and colleagues and and just how seemingly insurmountable the numbers have become. What's out there for kids as they start to navigate into this? Yeah. So what we're seeing is that the number of students graduating from high school has been pretty consistent over the last number of years. It's pretty stagnant growth in terms of high school graduates, yet we are seeing that students, especially coming from upper middle class families, upper class families are generally, and even middle class families are generally applying to more colleges than ever before. So if we look back to the 1990s, which is when I was graduating from high school and going to college, I applied to seven colleges and that was a lot back then. It was pretty common for a student to apply to two or three colleges. And now I know a lot of students who are applying to 12, 15, 20 colleges in some situations. And that means that certain colleges, not all, 
certain colleges are seeing exponential growth within their applicant pool, thus making those colleges much more selective to get admitted to. And those are the colleges that we hear about. So not only elite colleges and universities like Ivy League institutions or Ivy Plus institutions like Stanford and MIT, but those nationally known colleges and universities, especially this year during the pandemic, are seeing enormous growth within their applicant pool. And it just means that it's getting harder and harder to get in and harder and harder to figure out what makes a difference in the admissions process. And that's where I come in and try to help students and parents navigate the admissions process so that they understand what's really important and what isn't. You bring up a huge point. I mean, the numbers seem daunting. And then you have all this information and probably lots of misinformation about how to differentiate yourself amongst the pool. You know, do I have a 4.0? Am I first violin? Am I also captain of the lacrosse team? And, you know, did I pick up Mandarin over the summer? Those types of things. How do you advise kids and their parents, because they're a big part of it too, not to get overwhelmed by this process? And I'm sure the book helps to articulate that. How do you help people sort of attack this in bite-sized portions so that they just don't choke on the whole thing? Yeah, and that's really what a soundbite is, right? When we talk about soundbites in radio and TV, but in the world beyond TV and radio, it is, you know, this idea that the person on the receiving end doesn't have a very long attention span. And that person that we're speaking about in terms of college admissions is the admissions officer. And so number one, you've got to make sure as a student, you are applying to the right kinds of colleges that are going to value you. But you also have to have a really clear sense of who you are. Because if you don't, and if you follow the crowd and follow what everybody else is doing, you're not going to find the success that you are hoping for. So one of the biggest things that students need to do is to really celebrate their own individuality. And that's sometimes hard to do as a high school student. I think back to who I was in high school, and I just, I didn't want to get trampled on, you know, for a fight in the halls. That's, that was, you know, you just try to avoid any kind of drama and you I just tried to stay really, really neutral. But I had all of these ideas and that I wanted to do with my life. And frankly, I was I was pretty creative. But in high school, sometimes you think that's being different. But in fact, what I try to tell students is being different helps you stand out in high school, in an applicant pool, in college, in a career. That is what soundbite is all about. So I really encourage students to think about what makes them super, super, super special to stay in their lane, meaning they don't have to worry about what everybody else is doing and just focus on what makes them special and go after it so that when they're applying to college, they aren't trying to be someone that they're not. They're not trying to please colleges. They're really just celebrating what makes them distinctive and powerful and impactful. And so it's really a confidence approach to high school. And as I say, beyond, that's part of the title of the book. It isn't just, you know, Soundbite. It's the admission secret that gets you into college and beyond. So Soundbite is a method that high school students can use when they're applying to college or even before that. But for every stage of your life, we are faced with, you know, how we're going to stand out in an applicant pool for a job, 
for graduate school to get a book deal. You know, my idea for Soundbite had to be so different than what anybody else had ever written about college admissions. That's how we stand out in life and how we make an impact, not only on our own lives, but making an impact on so many other lives as well. So you bring up such a good point that this, this is really the first, you know, sort of toe in the water for most people in real life when everything that's gone on in development and what makes you you is evaluated by a dispassionate outside force. And that can be a chilling slash cold bucket of water over the face. One interesting thing that you know, I have people who have me talk to their kids about careers and sometimes uh, school choice and things like that. And apart from that, I don't know what's what. I feel like I'm the last person to graduate from college without an email address. So I'm uniquely unqualified to help. What is different now than back in the 90s when you and I were going through this process? One thing in particular, when we talked about exclusivity and what that looks like, but the advent of social media to me is something that it's not alien. I mean, we're all part of it, but it's something that kids have grown up with. And how does that interact with the admissions process? I mean, obviously, there's there are issues related to kids making sure they don't post pictures of themselves with beer and drugs and, you know, creating a, a brand around them that is not something that a college would like to have on their campus. But what are some of those factors where the increased technology and the increased individual branding awareness is markedly different from back in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, just such a different world right now. And most of the parents that I'm working with are from our generation. You know, when I think about applying to Hamilton College, which is where I went to college, it was my year. <laughs> Hamilton had the highest acceptance rate ever in its history. So there was a, a really different landscape going on. Even at highly selective colleges and universities, they didn't have huge applicant pools. There was a lot of competition in terms of students, you know, deciding whether to go to college, whether to go to technical school, whether to go to community college or get out into the workforce. So the competitiveness is, is like night and day between the 1990s and 2021. Because these applicant pools have grown so much, the process is even more fast-paced than when I got into college admissions. So my first job in college admissions was at Penn, and I started in the late 1990s. I had 20 to 30 minutes to read an application. And I'll tell you, I was you know, trying to get it done as quickly as I possibly could, and it was really hard to do. Nowadays, Penn admissions officers, they read an application in five minutes or less. So the swiftness of the process is shocking to some students. And so it, it means that, again, the student really should be applying to the right school so that their application isn't automatically dismissed because they're not competitive, but also they've got to make it clear what makes them different. That's the only way you're going to stand out in these applicant pools. So the swiftness of the process is shocking. The competition is shocking. And so much has changed even over the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic. We are seeing that, you know, students are no longer 
necessarily visiting all of the colleges before they apply. In some cases, last year and this year, we have students making decisions without ever stepping foot on a college campus or on that college campus. So social media and the virtual experience has really helped colleges, right? The virtual tours, virtual information sessions, virtual events for admitted students. But on the flip side, as you said, you know, students are using social media, they're using their savviness and technology to promote themselves, either good or bad. You know, in the book, I talk about the fact that we are all guilty of making snap judgments about other people. And when you look at a student's social media account or their social media presence, talk about a snap judgment. We immediately will think about, you know, what where they come from and what their family's like and what they value and what their approach is to life. But a lot of students don't realize that every little thing that they put out, whether it's on social media or in their application, could be used to help or hurt them in the admissions process. But I'm going to be honest you know, admissions officers really don't have a lot of time to read an application, let alone search the internet for a student's social media presence. So yes, it's true that some admissions officers are curious and will look a student up, but on a regular basis, they simply don't have time to do that for every single applicant when they have to at least, at the very least, read, and I say that in quotation marks, their application, because some applications are going to get read with more detail and thought than others. So interesting point on that. Admissions officers, that just don't have the time to process thousands of applications. When you were at Penn and at Franklin and Marshall, how did you think about putting the class together? So if you have 1,700 people, how did you think about all of that? You have everything from, you know, you want the kids to be qualified and want them to get something out of the experience, obviously. But then I'm sure you have the sports coaches who need certain people. You have the extracurricular activity people who need certain things and and then divvying up scholarships and all of that soup that you have to wade through in order to put the class together. How did you think about that in your experiences in the admissions departments? Yeah, there are so many things to consider. As an admissions officer, you are overwhelmed by all the institutional priorities. And then when you become a dean of admissions, if you're lucky enough to do that at some point, you realize the pressure you felt as an admissions officer pales in comparison to being a dean of admissions. I mean, I basically did not sleep because of all of the responsibilities I had as a dean of admissions. But yes, so there are so many considerations and you can't really guess what a college's institutional priorities are because they could shift from year to year depending on the president, the dean of admissions, the climate on campus. But here are the big ones that deans of admissions consider. So if they are a selective college, and that's I'm using that in a very broad way, but if they work for a selective college, they are thinking about diversity on many different levels. They are looking and hoping for racial diversity. They are hoping for geographic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, because, you know, again, if we look at the student makeup of elite colleges back in the 1990s, it was 
pretty much mostly white students coming from upper middle class and upper class families. There were exceptions to that. But now in this new era, these deans are thinking about how do we get more first generation college students on our campus? How do we get more students from you know, rural areas or underrepresented states in the applicant pool? But they're also thinking about their academic programs as well. So at Penn, for example, Penn has four undergraduate schools. They have to worry about meeting targets and institutional priorities, not just for the undergraduate student body as a whole at Penn, but for Wharton, for nursing, for engineering, for the College of Arts and Sciences. So that adds another layer onto it. And also what I like to do in Application Nation with my students is I'm constantly saying to them, you know, they'll tell me I'm interested in business or I'm interested in majoring in English or science or pre-med. And I say, show me the evidence. And what I mean by that is it's really important for students to think very carefully through the major that they list on their application these days, because admissions officers know that students could absolutely change their minds and a lot do. But for the admissions process, those admissions officers are looking for the very best students for business, the very best students for the English department, the very best students for biology or chemistry or biochemistry. And so having evidence to back up that major is really crucial. And in the book, I kind of walk the student through all the different sections of the application and how you literally could provide evidence of your ability and passion and talent and skill for that major in every single section of the application. So as a dean, you are thinking about academic programming. You're thinking about, yes, that extracurricular piece too. I often say to families, colleges want what they don't have or who they don't have a lot of. So again, it goes back to that idea of, don't try to be like everybody else. And there's certain things you can't change. You can't change your race. You can't change where you come from in your family. But make sure that if you have an unusual interest or a quirky passion or an independent hobby, don't be afraid to explore it in high school because colleges want a little bit of everything. Really interesting. So you talked a little bit about the socioeconomic component. And it is no secret to anybody over the age of 15 that college is expensive no matter what stripe you put on your back. And how does that line up with the decisions admissions officers make and in terms of borrowing and the other resources that are available to students? How do you look at the socioeconomic component of it? And how does that work in relating to students who are deciding from a student loan perspective or the amount of leverage that they're taking on when they're making a decision? So finances comes into play from the very beginning of the college admissions process. You know, the thought of visiting 15 to 20 colleges for a family is ludicrously expensive if you actually do that. So it begins right away. I encourage families to really investigate how each college on their list handles finances and the whole financial picture. Not only are they a need-aware college versus a need-blind college, and we can talk about that, not only whether they offer merit scholarships versus need-based financial aid, but you know how 
a college views a student's financial background. That is something that colleges will consider. You may have heard the term holistic admissions. It means that a college is not just looking at your transcript, your test scores, your essays, your activities lists and recommendation letters. They're looking at, you know, who your parents are, you know, where you live, what your race is, what your gender is, what major you're considering, all of these factors. So the finances need to be something that families really consider right from the start. Because in some cases, if the student is applying to a need-aware college, now here's the thing, a need-aware college is not going to brag about it. They're not going to have it plastered all over their website. Hey, we're need-aware. You'd have to call and find out and get you know a straight answer. But what that means is that they will factor in the ability to pay into the admissions process. And they will do that because almost always they don't have the financial budget to be able to support and provide financial aid to all the students that they want to admit. So for a student who isn't going to be applying for need-based financial aid, applying to a need-aware college can actually increase their chances of acceptance. Now, most of the elite colleges now plaster all over their website that they are need-blind. Need-blind means that Regardless of your need for financial aid, it's not going to matter in the admissions process because these admissions offices, these colleges, I should say, can meet a student's full demonstrated need 100%. So, you know, for families that can afford to pay the full way, for families who can't, it's really important to do your research and know what you're getting yourself into. And the whole thing about, you know, student debt is something that is so important that parents need to talk about with their children. And that's why merit scholarships can be very, not only flattering, but can be very helpful, especially if the student is thinking about going on to grad school, professional school. It's one of those things where I talk to people in my day job, but even people outside of it who ask whether graduate programs are worth it or, you know, whether private school versus public school is worth it. And I said, look, you know, it's a very individual situation, but you almost have to pencil it out a little bit and see what you're paying. And, you know, the financial literacy of this country is could be a lot better. And I think a lot of people make decisions that have long-term ramifications. You know, if you go to a liberal arts school and you you come out of it with an art history degree that isn't necessarily the most viable thing for the job market, that's one decision that a lot of times if there was some forethought ahead of it, you could have had a better long-term decision at the beginning of the process. And it sounds like that type of thing makes sense at your end too. Yeah. And I, I think, I think families need to understand that you know, the admission scandal, the pandemic, they've all impacted how colleges are handling college admissions. And perceptions are important to these colleges and universities. And so what used to happen 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, no longer happens to that extent. Some shady things still happen. But it's been reduced significantly because of what's happened over the last couple of years and that, you know, families are concerned that certain students are getting advantages in the admissions process that, you know, make this an unlevel playing field for most students. 
So that Operation Varsity Blues and the scandal around that and people gaming the system. I mean, maybe take us through that a little bit. Did that come up a lot in your experience? And did you have to check into things a little bit more closely with certain applicants and any particular anonymous war stories that are interesting on that front? Oh, if we had days, we could go through all of them. But yeah, I mean, when the admission scandal broke, I mean, I was not surprised because a lot of things happen in college admissions. And because it's such a private process, such a exclusive, secretive process, it's very easy for colleges, admissions offices, and in you know some cases, athletics or other administrators, it's so easy for them to get away with things. So yes, connections made a huge difference when I was working on the college side. Alumni connections, trustee connections, if you knew a trustee of a college or university, if you came from a certain high school, if you came from a certain background, if your parents were willing to donate money, these were all things that could influence the admissions process. And of course, athletics as well. You know, still to this day, the most influential piece of the admissions process, the thing that will increase the student's chances significantly about getting admitted is being a recruited athlete. And so Rick Singer, who was the ringleader of the admissions scandal, he was brilliant. He knew what would make the difference. And it was athletics. And still to this day, we see that being a recruited athlete can significantly increase your acceptance rate. What has changed since the admissions scandal You know, athletics is still going on the same way, I would say, for the most part. It's still a very powerful, influential piece of the admissions process. But a lot of these colleges, even the elite colleges, have now gotten rid of a number of varsity sports. And so that, you know, some of the minor, not minor, but some of the less well-known varsity sports, you know, it's no longer helpful to do sailing or to play squash or to water polo, some of these sports that not everybody really paid attention to. So some of these sports teams have been absolutely eliminated. I will say, and this is just, you know, being able to see a bigger applicant pool because of Application Nation and I have students applying to all different types of colleges. I do notice that with the NESCAC schools in Hamilton is one of them. These are a group of small liberal arts colleges, mostly in New England, although Hamilton's in New York, for example. I noticed that those NESCAC colleges began to be very tough on those recruited athletes after the admission scandal. But other than that, I'm still seeing that recruited athletes, they carry a lot of weight still in the admissions process. But as an admissions officer, you're trained to sniff out the interloper. Like, you know instantly when something doesn't add up. That's the thing about admissions officers. You know, you, you're not necessarily going to get, you know, someone who has their PhD in, you know, neuroscience, but you are getting, especially for the people who stay in the field, You get admissions officers who are so intuitive. They can read between the lines. They can interpret things so well. They understand people so incredibly well. And so you know when things aren't adding up. Now, as an admissions officer, I could speak up at Penn, but if I wanted to keep my job, I knew I had to shut up. And then when I became a dean of admissions, 
I thought, well, I'm a dean. I can speak up when I see things that are unethical. But that meant that, you know, I was not very popular with our president and not very popular with the board of trustees because I called them out on things that just were absolutely horrific and shady. So, you know, in the end, once I left Franklin and Marshall, you know, and I started writing and blogging and doing videos and Facebook lives and Instagram lives, it was all about me just sharing what I know so that families do not get blindsided and do not get derailed or follow a, a plan that makes absolutely no sense. It may have worked for someone they know, but every student has to approach this in a very genuine and authentic way. If not, the chances of them getting admitted are low or the chances of them getting caught are very high. One little side note, and then we start to wind down, it seems to be a trend toward getting away from standardized tests. And I would think that the standardized tests were pretty useful in helping to create a common criteria upon which you could measure different students against each other, in addition to what they bring from grade point averages and their extracurricular activities and the like. What do you think is going to happen with that? I would think that I would be frustrated by not having a common scoring system that that everyone had to abide by or at least deal with in dealing with things. But do you think that's a trend that's going to continue or is that something that may fade away as standards become, they start to metastasize probably? I think the trend is here to stay, but let me kind of walk us back a little bit. So testing is very objective. And as an admissions officer, even before you really dive into the application, you see the student's name, race, high school, test scores, GPA, some basic information. And if you see testing from what we call a majority student, that's usually a white or an Asian student in an applicant pool, if the test scores are below that middle range of acceptability, that student's application will get read, but it'll get read very, very, very quickly because the admissions officer knows that student has no chance of getting admitted. So when all these colleges adopted a test optional policy during the pandemic last spring, all these students who either didn't have any scores or were not happy with their scores said, hey, this is my chance to get into an elite college. And that's why all these elite colleges got so many applications. What these elite colleges saw in particular is that their applicant pools grew, but they grew in unusual ways, ways that they've been trying to do for decades, especially when it comes to students of color. And so all the work that I used to do to try to get a handful of students of color to apply to Penn back in the day, you know, were pathetic compared to just going test optional as an institution. So it's going to be really hard for these colleges that saw enormous applicant pools, and that's what they want. They want as many applications as possible, and saw huge diversity numbers to go back to what they had before, meaning requiring testing. Does it mean that every college that went test optional this year is going to extend it next year and beyond? No, but I think test optional is going to become very common moving forward. And, you know, even before the pandemic hit, we had over a thousand colleges in this country that had a permanent test optional policy. But I think 
after this pandemic, we will see that number double and maybe go even higher than that. Really cool. We could probably talk for two more hours on this subject, but time is winding down. Congratulations on the book. How do we keep track of what you are up to, your practice, and where can people find the book? Sure. You can check out my website, sarahharberson.com, for a lot of free resources. You can also check out Application Nation. That is, again, my private Facebook group working with students and parents through the admissions process. I do Facebook Lives every single month, Instagram Lives every Friday afternoon. And also you can find my book, Soundbite, by going to my website, sarahharberson.com slash soundbite. And you can also listen to the audiobook of Soundbite, and you can access that and buy it through my website or any book selling website or store that you like. Well, for all of our listeners, I'll have this in the show notes as well. So you'll have a consolidated place where you can find the media empire that's being built here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being on. This is really insightful. And it's amazing to me how much the process has changed. And A, how dumb I am about it, but B, how it's really, it's forcing kids to grow up very quickly, whereas maybe that wasn't the case way back when. I tend to agree. Yeah. Terrific. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.